Hi, and welcome back to the Wild EM podcast, still bringing you better care out there. I've recently had the chance to go back to school for a week of training in a NICU for a new job. Reading about and treating patients in the NICU, let me tell you, it is all about the A and the B. No talking about the C before you get those two right. Now, we'll get more into why this is, but it reminded me of a great talk I heard at a recent wilderness medicine conference last winter on drowning. So, kids may not be small adults, but adults just might be oversized neonates, at least when it comes to drowning. You're listening to Canadian Podcasts. Drowning is no rare occurrence. Throughout the world, nearly 400,000 deaths happen every year. With warming temperatures these past years, Canada has seen a significant increase in the number of fatal winter drownings from winter activities on ice. So this is not just happening in the summer months as well. What's more to consider is that drowning victims are often young and healthy, making this even more of a tragedy. For all these reasons, it is really important to know our stuff when it comes to treating drowning patients. Definition. Okay, it's important to spend some time here because we often hear people mix up the definitions. Drowning is experiencing any respiratory symptom or impairment after submersion or immersion in a liquid. Drowning can essentially lead to three things. First of all, nothing bad happens. Second, bad stuff happens, and sometimes this can be pretty severe and lead to some significant sequelae. And third, death. So you can see that there is no longer the use of terms like near drowning. You either fit the bill for one of the three options we've described, or you don't. Fresh or seawater. Distinguishing what type of water the patient drowned in is irrelevant. This notion came from an article published way back in 1966 where they demonstrated a variation in serum electrolytes after aspiration volumes greater than 20 cc per kgs in dogs. A more recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine by Spilsman et al. in 2012 showed that typically humans that have drowned have only aspirated around 1 to 3 cc's per kilograms of fluid, so much less than the amounts demonstrated to cause electrolyte abnormalities. Furthermore, regardless of the type of fluid you drowned in, there's a common pathway of hypoxemia leading to cardiac arrest, and that is what will kill your patient, and not any later electrolyte abnormalities. That likely don't even occur at the volumes drowning victims have in their lungs anyways. Rescue. Patients who are drowning may not be in a safe environment for you to help them out as a first responder or healthcare provider. Scene and rescuer safety is the first priority. Now, I am not a rescue professional, and my background is limited to some river rescue courses that I have taken as a pretty amateur kayaker. In other words, I'm a real pro at paddling class 4 rapids with my head underwater, which is pretty suboptimal to steer the boat. So with that in mind, you can understand that this podcast will not be about river rescue. 
but I will still emphasize the importance of first rescuing the patient if required and ensuring scene and rescuer safety. So if your professional or recreational activities put you in a place where people may drown in unsafe environments, get the appropriate training to not make a bad situation worse. Patient treatment in water resuscitation. In the 2019 Wilderness Medical Society Guidelines on Drowning, the authors discuss in-water resuscitation. They define this as providing ventilation to a drowning patient, but not CPR, as if it will not be effective in water. They cite a pretty interesting article, again by Spillman, showing an increase in positive outcomes, meaning survival without sequelae, in patients who received in-water resuscitation. But hold on, a few big caveats here. First, this was a retrospective study. Now, this is an issue because we have to wonder why were certain patients resuscitated in the water and others not? Did the rescuers on the scene feel compelled to act sooner in patients they felt had a better chance and therefore got in water resuscitation? Obviously, this is just one of the many questions we could ask ourselves faced with these results. But what it boils down to is that patients who got in-water resuscitation were likely a different group of patients than those that did not get resuscitated in the water, and therefore the conclusions of a retrospective study are hypothesis generating for further research, but nothing more at this stage. Second caveat. This study was performed on the coast of Brazil, where water temperatures averaged 20 degrees Celsius. I mention this for two reasons. First, the rescue in this area is pretty unique. If a patient is drowning, he or she may be brought by the lifeguards past the breaking waves away from shore where they would initiate in-water resuscitation awaiting a chopper rescue. Now, in these very precise circumstances, I can see how this may be beneficial. Meaning, if you have a situation where swimming back to shore in breaking waves is longer and a chopper is rapidly deployed to airlift you out of the water, well, it may very well make sense to do this in-water resuscitation in this very specific scenario. But... This scenario is likely not the one you will find yourself in if ever you have to treat a drowning patient. Furthermore, performing in-water resuscitation is limited to rescue breaths, and in someone that sick, there's a chance you may need additional treatments which you will not be able to provide in the water. Now I do recognize that the rescue breaths are the priority in these patients, but even delivering breaths with an adequate seal and personal protective equipment sounds like an immense challenge depending on the water you're in. You will have to gather the best possible information about the mechanism of injury when deciding the patient warrants C-spine precautions. That will definitely not be an easy task. So err on the side of caution, but recognize that C-spine precautions will complicate management of the airway and breathing, which are the key here. So always mandating C-spine precautions in drowning patients will without a doubt lead to harm. Illustrating this point is an article by Watson et al that looked at the data from over 2,000 drowning victims. Less than 1% of these had a spinal injury, and in all cases, they had what the authors said was, quote, obvious signs of a spinal injury secondary to either a motor vehicle accident or diving in shallow water. This has led the AHA guidelines for advanced cardiac life support to recommend against routine cervical immobilization in all these patients as it can interfere with essential airway management. If you need to maintain C-spine precautions, though, I personally believe a rigid cervical collar is not the way to go in drowning patients in most circumstances. If you haven't already, check out the previous episode on C-spine for a more in-depth discussion of spinal immobilization. 
But again, I would strongly encourage you to comply with local practice and regulations. ABCs. Wait, what? ABCs? Didn't we change that to CAB? Well, yeah we did, but bear with me. In 2010, the AHA changed the guidelines for CPR to prioritize chest compressions. This makes sense as most patients suffering from cardiac arrest have a medical issue causing their arrest. Think a heart attack. Now, the seconds right before their heart stop, their patients were still breathing and getting oxygen to their cells. So for these cases, prioritizing chest compressions to circulate that blood and oxygen to the brain is the priority, and that makes sense. Now, if you're drowning, this does not apply, because the reason drowning patients are sick or have suffered a cardiac arrest is hypoxia, or low oxygen levels. Therefore, even if you do the best chest compressions out there and give your patient perfect circulation of blood without oxygen, won't do them any good. This concept can also be applied to trauma care. Though this is an area of debate, some very smart doctors are not immediately performing CPR in patients who have suffered a cardiac arrest caused by a traumatic pathology. The reasoning is similar to the drowning patient, in that if your heart is stopped because of traumatic pathology, that means you either have bled out, or that air or blood in a closed space is preventing adequate blood circulation. Think tension pneumothorax or tamponade. In these cases, some people will argue that pumping the heart with CPR isn't solving any of those issues, and rather you should be focusing on treating the cause of the arrest, either with massive transfusion, thoracotomy for example. Without getting further into the discussion of treatment of the traumatic cardiac arrest, we can see the similar reasoning in treatment of drowning patients focusing on the cause of their problems, in this case cell hypoxia. And this brings us to neonatal care, to further hammer home my point. In neonatal resuscitation, or the NRP courses, it is all about the A and the B. In fact, even when the pulse drops below 60, which in kids means you should start cardiac compressions, in neonatal care, according to the latest NRP guidelines, you first need to ensure you are adequately ventilating your patient for another 30 seconds, because that is almost always where the problem lies. Participating in neonatal resuscitations, I have witnessed firsthand seeing neonates drop their pulse below 100, have obvious clinical signs of shock, only to have these problems rapidly corrected by addressing the A and the B. No chest compressions, no epinephrine, they needed correction of their hypoxia. And that is how I believe we should view resuscitation of drowning patients. So, with that in mind, let's move on to the nuts and bolts of dealing with the airway and breathing of these patients. Airway. Here, you want to ensure the airway is open and patent. Though very few of these patients will have a spinal injury, I would still recommend getting in the habit of opening the airway with a jaw thrust maneuver rather than the chin lift. If you have any suctioning equipment with you, have it in hand and ready to aspirate any secretions. Breathing. Once the upper airway is opened and permeable, if the patient is not adequately ventilated and oxygenated, breaths need to be provided. If you go back to our first episode on the medical kit, you will likely have a face shield and in that case provide mouth-to-mouth breaths. If you are lucky enough to have a BVM, I would reach for it as it's likely to deliver better ventilation than mouth-to-mouth with the face shield. Furthermore, you will be able to be in a much more comfortable position using the BVM as well as getting feedback on resistance while delivering the breaths. 
If you're going to carry one of these, you may be interested in the Tactical Pocket BVM. It packs down very small while offering all the advantages of the standard BVM. Obviously, I don't receive any compensation from anyone, I just found that this is a great product. There are also advanced airway interventions that may be performed in the field. This could be the topic of a whole podcast, so we won't go there today, but maybe in a future episode. The one thing I will mention here, though, is that often supraglottic devices are used in the field, and for good reason, with some recent evidence showing that they fare just as well as an ET tube. But keep in mind, that evidence did not focus on drowning patients, and in these cases, the increased pressures required to ventilate their lungs may cause significant leaks with supraglottic devices. In these circumstances, BVM may in fact be a better option, so keep that in mind if you see your patient doing worse or you suspect is having significant leaks with a supraglottic device. Another point of discussion here is optimizing tissue oxygen levels. Since, as we discussed earlier, the common pathway of badness in drowning patients is cell hypoxia leading to cardiac arrest. Therefore, there are two ways to improve blood oxygen levels. First of all, supplemental oxygen. If you have this available to you, use it. In the ED and critical care literature, more and more data is coming out confirming that oxygen is a drug and too much oxygen is bad for our patients. These studies are mostly conducted in the hospital setting, and there is no data to guide us when it comes to drowning patients. So if you can reliably measure O2Sat in the field and titrate your oxygen for saturation levels above, say, 94%, I think that's ideal. But more likely, if you don't have oxygen saturation monitoring, or if you're not getting a good signal, I would recommend cranking up the O2 as the benefits likely outweigh the risks in this particular circumstance. Though not supported by any good data, this is also the recommendation in the latest Wilderness Medical Society guidelines. Second way to improve blood oxygen levels is PEEP, or positive and expiratory pressure. In the field, the best way to achieve this is also by carrying a PEEP valve that you can attach to your BVM. Here, ideally, you would want continuous positive pressure, but that would be rather complicated to set up in the field for most teams, so we'll skip over that for today as well. Circulation. Okay, after A and B, now you can get to C. And the C is still very important. Because once you've done a good job of getting that sweet O2 to the lungs, you need the heart, and your CPR that is, to deliver that oxygen to the tissues. Also, once patients are severely hypoxic, they are prone to lethal arrhythmias. So using an AED is important, if of course it is available to you. But again, I think it's worth repeating here, if you have it dealt with the A and the Bs, do not pass go. You need to deal with them first, as doing CPR to circulate blood with no oxygen in it, or shocking VFIP that's been caused by hypoxia, will not fix the patient's issues without first addressing the underlying cause, and in drowning patients, again, that is hypoxia. E. Exposure. Here, you need to be thinking concurrently of hypothermia. I say concurrently because drowning patients are at risk of being or developing hypothermia, so addressing this needs to be on your mind throughout the whole resuscitation. For a more in-depth review of hypothermia, check out our previous podcast covering that topic. Other treatments. It was once argued that drowning patients needed to have the hemlock maneuver performed to clear aspirated water from the airway before dealing with the A and B. The latest WMS guidelines discuss the lack of any benefit demonstrating from doing so, and rightfully point out that doing this will likely only lead to a delay in what's more important. So, the Hemlick in drowning patients? 
do not do it. Also, back in the day, it was once common practice to treat drowning patients with tobacco enemas. This was literally blowing smoke up your patient's As you may have guessed, by the meaning of that phrase in today's world, tobacco enemas are no longer a recommended treatment for drowning patients. Though, on second thought, I wonder if your patient is also hypothermic if you could be treating both those issues at once with the tobacco enema. Hmm, sounds like an upcoming Journal Club episode. Now, on a more serious note, let's move on to... Stopping Resuscitation This is a complex topic for any resuscitation, not just drowning patients. Lacking any good data to help guide us here, the WMS recommend it may be reasonable to cease resuscitation when, number one, more than 30 minutes submersion in over 6 degrees Celsius water, number two, more than 90 minutes of submersion in less than 6 degrees Celsius water, number three, after 25 minutes of CPR. Their phrasing of it may be reasonable comes to show just how uncertain these recommendations are, and I would argue this is a complex topic and decisions that can't be boiled down to black or white rules. The decision to resuscitate, and for how long, is complex, and will depend not only on your patient, but also on the environment and the well-being of the rescuers on the scene. But understanding how complex this is, hopefully the above recommendations can be of help if you are ever faced with making this call. Patient disposition. Again, going to the WMS guidelines, they cite a very interesting retrospective study to help us figure out who needs evacuation after a drowning. In this study, again by Spillman and all in 1997, they found that any patient with normal lung auscultation, even if they had a cough, had a 0% mortality. This is very useful information when trying to figure out if you need to evac someone after a drowning. The only downside is you would need a stethoscope to properly assess the patient's lungs, which may not always be in your medical kit depending on which one you brought and for the outing. An interesting thought here, with portable ultrasounds becoming smaller and more accessible, their use for this purpose would be very interesting to study. Newer models are often the size of a stethoscope, but much more useful for other applications in the wilderness. To my knowledge though, there is no data on their use to risk stratified drowning patients yet. Now, if you have abnormal lung sounds, then your patient's mortality can vary from anywhere to 1-5%, to and therefore they need to be evac Another interesting feature is any episode of hypotension with a systolic BP below 90 increases mortality to a whopping 20%, so do be worried about these patients. On this note, you may have heard the classic ATLS teaching that says a radial pulse means a BP over 80, and a carotid and femoral pulse only means BPs between 70 to 80. Unfortunately though, a study by Deacon and all in the BMJ in the 2000s disproved this. So, as much as the BP is valuable to help prognosticate these patients, you cannot estimate it using pulses. You really do need to take the BP with a cuff. That being said though, again, distinguishing in the field a patient with a 5% mortality from one with a 20% mortality by measuring the BP in addition to your lung exam may just be an academic thought because in both of these cases, these patients will have abnormal lung sounds and you should be worried and planning to evac ASAP. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground today for caring for drowning patients in the wilderness setting. Let's review some key points. Number one, definition. If you were submerged in water and have any respiratory symptoms afterwards, you have drowned. 
Now this is obviously a spectrum that can range from benign symptoms that will resolve on their own, but all the way to death. Number two, salt water or fresh water? It don't matter, hypoxia is what causes the badness in both cases. Number three, ABC not CAB. Airway and breathing is what's causing your patient's problem. Deal with them first and do not pass go if they are not addressed before moving on to circulation. Number four, any patient with abnormal lung auscultation needs to be evacuated for definitive care in the hospital setting as their condition may worsen and they may die as a result of this. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in and until next time, remember to keep your crampons in the ice.